On that Sunday, August afternoon, when uh, I was in Moscow, before my class started on Monday that I was teaching, I got to go downtown, and I was actually in Red Square, and among all the sights that I got to see for those couple hours I was there, I happened to be at the Russian equivalent of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington Cemetery. Now, it's not a tomb, it is a flame that burns continually, and they also have a changing of the guard. So I'm going to be there at the time of the changing of the guard, and I watched as the soldiers that were put into place and those that were relieved of their duty were taken out. But I found it really interesting because, well, first of all, there was just a lot of chaos and motion going around. It's not... It's in a very public environment, so there's music from behind coming out of buildings and restaurants, and there are people on the grass around that were talking and laughing, and, and, uh, and only a handful of people that were standing up by this little wall were kind of watching with any kind of interest. And I noticed that the guards, when they were put in place, didn't stand there like you would expect them to stand there. They kind of, they kind of looked around every once in a while. They kind of seemed to be distracted. They might hear something or look over. You know, I, I just was kind of surprised. Because I've been to Arlington, and there is just this hushed, reverent mode. When that soldier comes in, that guard comes in to relieve the other, and there's not a sound that's made, and you cannot distract them for all the money in the world. They are of singular focus, guarding the tomb of the unknown. Now that is the picture that I think of when I think of Proverbs 4.23. We might look at this and live it as if we were distracted, but we ought to look at it with singular focus. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, I suspect that we read that much more casually than Solomon ever intended, because most of it read it like guard your emotions, you know, be sure to control your anger when you get a little bit upset, or exercise patience uh, day by day, and certainly those are important goals, but this verse isn't about our emotions. You see, we, we don't get it. When we read heart, we think of emotions, but the Hebrew reading this would have understood this conveys the idea of one's intellectual and ethical center, one's very soul. Various translations word it differently. It says, watch your heart, guard your heart, keep your heart. It all boils down to the same thing. Above all, be vigilant to protect your mind and your ethics in order to keep yourself spiritually grounded. And remember, guarding works both ways, folks. Some guards are set to keep people from breaking in. Guards on a fortress. Guards at a bank. Okay? They, they keep the outsiders from, from breaking in. And, and so, should we guard against outside forces tainting or destroying our mind, our intellect, our will, and our ethics. But there are some guards that guard from those getting out, like a prison guard. And so we should carefully guard some of the things that are inside of us from getting out. Sometimes the bad thoughts, the bad words, uh, the bad things that we convey that come out through our mouth or come out through our actions when we lose control. Guard against those things getting out. Why should we be on guard? Well, because Solomon says that our intellectual and our ethical center is the very wellspring of life. It's a big deal. 
wellspring. You know, we, we read about a well, we don't think much about it because we live in such a wonderful day that when we need water, we just go over to the faucet and turn it on. We may let the water run for two or three minutes before we even, uh, you know, wash our hands or drink the water or we let it turn hot or whatever it is. We just don't think about water because there's a never-ending supply for us. But I'm here to tell you that a wellspring in Solomon's day that provided fresh, clean water was the equivalent today of having a gold mine. In the, Old Test, or in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, the ownership of a well was equated to the ownership of an olive grove or a vineyard. It'd be like you having a farm today and somebody say, your farm is worth what this well is worth. And you think, my goodness, how could a well be worth that much? Wells were so important that they were named. And oftentimes cities bore the name of the nearest well. And since water was essential to life, feuds and battles were often fought over the rights and the use of a wellspring. In the arid seasons, guards would be posted to protect the water supply so nobody else could steal it. And the most dastardly act of vengeance that one country could exact on another was to destroy its wells after it had achieved victory in battle. To put it mildly, folks, a wellspring was the difference between life and death. Now that gives new perspective to this verse. Your mind and your will, the, the center of your intellect and your ethics are just that, a wellspring of life out of which grow the important issues that we face. If you've ever tasted stale water or water that's been tainted by some unpleasant substance, you'll know that it's not drinkable. Similarly, we cannot afford to allow the negative things of this world to taint and muddy our minds and our wills, our ethics and our behavior. It is a matter of life and death. So guard your heart well. Over the next three weeks, we're going to explore three areas where we dare not drop our guard. And the first is this, guard your heart well against unnecessary want. Now, what is unnecessary want? Well, I think there's two ways to look at that very phrase, unnecessary want, and the first is the most obvious. Have you seen any of these products that are available for purchase this Christmas? From a diamond-studded cell phone to a 24-carat plated Wii Entertainment Center. Now, I think most of us here this morning would say, that is extravagant. That's wasteful. That's an easy description of unnecessary want. <laughs> and this time of the year brings out the best of unnecessary wants in the best of us. As a kid, I can remember, you know, spending hours looking through the Sears and Montgomery Ward and J.C. Penney Christmas catalogs. I had pieces of sheets of paper, and I'd write down all these things that I'd see. Flip the page, I'd write. I just everything I saw. I thought, oh, that would be great. And mom and dad would gently suggest that I should list my top favorites because I probably wouldn't get everything on the list. And I remember thinking. Well, what's the big deal? It's not like it's going to cost us something. Santa brings it down the chimney from the North Pole. You know, I couldn't figure this out. Why did I have to make a, a prioritized list? Well, several years later, I figured out how it all worked and understood it a little bit better. As we grow older, our lists change, but 
Unfortunately, sometimes our attitudes do not. We become fixated on things with now higher price tags as if those things will somehow bring us happiness. As a result, this season of the year tends to get pretty crazy. When we try to find just the right gift for the person that's hard to buy for, or we try to figure out, okay, I need to spend X amount of dollars because I think my friend is going to spend X amount of dollars on me, and we're embarrassed if they spend more than we do, and we're mad when they spend less than we do. What a crazy time of year. Think I'm exaggerating all this? <laughs> Total spending over the four-day weekend following Thanksgiving reached a record $52.4 billion. That's up 16% from last year. A record 226 million consumers shopped in stores and online between Thursday and Sunday. $52.4 billion. A lot of that will be unnecessary and a lot of it will be unwanted. But that's not the whole story. You know we have problems with unnecessary want when Christmas shopping becomes hazardous and life-threatening. Who would think of Walmart as a dangerous place to go? <laughs> video game violence can't compare to being pepper sprayed in the video game aisle of Walmart. And that's not the only troubling report. Seven states reported acts of violence on Black Friday. Two would-be shoppers in California were hospitalized. This happened in two different cities. One was shot and one was stabbed. Two shoppers were injured in a robbery in South Carolina. A brawl broke out in the electronics department at one store in Rome, New York. And that's just a few examples. Sort of gives the name Black Friday new meaning, doesn't it? In the past, people have even been trampled in the mad rush of the mob trying to get inside the doors of the store. One man who was a witness to an act of violence told the police, he said, this was my first Black Friday shopping experience and I'll never forget what I saw. You see sides of people that they themselves don't even know existed. Isn't that a sad tragedy? Retailers hailed the day as a great success and the good news they said is that nobody died this year. Oh, that's the good news? Nobody died? Well, yeah, that is pretty good news because in years past, people have died on Black Friday. The stress created by trying to fulfill these unnecessary ones can be crippling. In fact, according to a recent poll, more than 80% of us find the holiday season to be either somewhat or very stressful. 80%. Holiday stress is created by several factors, one of which is spending too much or going into debt for unnecessary wants. Other stress factors include eating too much. I, I almost left that one off the list. I didn't really <laughs> want to add that one. Doing too much. Too much togetherness. Or on the other side of the coin, not enough togetherness. You want to minimize the stress of this month? And some of you are saying, too late. We'll start now anyway. Even if you feel it's too late, start now today. Prioritize. Decide what activities will enhance your joy instead of taking away from your joy. Because you see, if you lose your joy, you'll lose, well, you'll just be exhausted. If you're exhausted, you can't find the joy again. And without the joy, none of it makes much sense. Set spending limits for family and friends. Don't overdo. Don't go into debt for it. Find some time to rest. 
find some time to relax. Most of all, stay focused on what Christmas really means for our eternity. As the years have passed, I find my holiday values have changed. Where at one time I would have been deeply disappointed to not find anything under the tree with my name on it, I have now discovered that just being with family and enjoying one another's company and playing games together or telling stories or most of all to realize the incredible difference that Christmas has made in the advent of our Savior in this world that, that I have and you have eternal life because he came into this world as that infant. I mean, that means more than anything. Now, don't get me wrong. If I have a gift under the tree with my name on it, I'm keeping it. But I'm finally starting to realize that the proper priority for things on my list has changed. And if there is no gift under the tree with my name on it, I'm okay with that too. There is, however, another way to look at the phrase unnecessary want. It is unnecessary that some have to be in want when we can do something about it. I was reminded of this when Ajay Law spoke last month from India and he talked about the children with cleft palates and he showed a couple of the children from India with that deformity and I remember being there and seeing children like this and I remember going through the medical facility there which was the only medical facility for like uh, you know over a hundred thousand people in that region and I'm telling you folks I don't think it would have met one of the codes of American hospitals I mean, these people were doing a wonderful job with their limited resources, and they were making such an impact and making a dent, but that's all it was, was a dent. And they were doing the best that they could. I admired them deeply because we wouldn't put up with it. But that's all they've got. And I look at these children who are considered by their culture, as Ajay said, to be cursed. And their only shot at life is to just have a surgery that will fix that simple procedure. Isn't it unnecessary that they should want for the simple gift of a surgery? Or what about people who want clean water? Isn't it unnecessary that they should want for the simple gift of fresh water just because they have no well? Or how about people in America who can't read? Isn't it unnecessary that they should want for the simple gift of someone to teach them? Or how about Burmese refugees in Fort Wayne who don't have Bibles to study? I understand that there are more Burmese refugees in Fort Wayne than perhaps any other city in America. Isn't it unnecessary that they should want for the simple gift of God's Word? You see, some unnecessary wants at this year, time of the year we can do without. Some wants, it seems, are unnecessary that people should have to be without in life. Well, let me ask the second question. That is simply this. What is God's wisdom for us in discerning our wants? I want to take you back to the Old Testament and share with you a really unique proclamation of the Lord. That this was just one of those unique moments that came along, well, every half century. I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. This is only the introductory verse. I would suggest that you go and read the rest of the chapter when you get a chance. But this is what we read. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. 
Now this was the introduction to the year of Jubilee. The word Jubilee means ram's horn or blasting of the ram's horn. And the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, was ushered in with the blast of the horn. Now God had this principle that, well, you know, our week is made up of seven days, and the seventh day, the Sabbath day, was holy. It was a day of rest. Well, every seventh year became a Sabbath year, and God said, don't plant any crops on that year. If you follow my plan, I will provide you a harvest the year before that will give you enough to get through the seventh year. Let the ground have a rest. Seven sevens make 49 years. And so the 50th year, became the year of Jubilee, and it was ushered in at the end of the Day of Atonement, this, this great holiday, this holy day in the fall of the year when the people would gather and, and there was a sacrifice made for the sins of the people and the high priest confessed the sins on the, on the sacrifice's head and the sacrifice were made and the people knew that God had lifted their sins and rolled those sins ahead to the cross even though they didn't know it was going to be the cross at that time. They just knew God would take care of it. It was a day of wonderful freedom and release. And at the end of that day, on the 50th year, they would blow the trumpets and it would signal that the year of Jubilee had started, a year of freedom. And what marked that, that particular year were these characteristics. It was freedom for anybody enslaved. They were released from their slavery. And if you had been in debt and you had then indentured yourself to someone else to help pay for the debt, in the year of Jubilee, that debt was erased and you were let to go free. Freedom for the land, no crops were planted and nothing was to be harvested and then all land was returned to the original owners. This was a beautiful thing. When the, when the Israelites went into the land of promise, God divided up the land. Every family of every clan of every tribe received some kind of a land inheritance. Now it would be easy as the years go on for somebody to fall on hard times and so they sell their property and so they have no inheritance for their children then you end up with people who are homeless and you have others that become huge landowners. but in the year of Jubilee all land that had been purchased reverted back to its original owners so that no family was ever left ultimately without a piece or a parcel of land for their family. It was a beautiful way of God being able to say, it's not your land to begin with. As a matter of fact, you're only leasing the land until the year of Jubilee, then it returns to the natural owner, and the natural owner really is only borrowing it from me, this is my land. It was God's way of saying, step out in faith, step out in freedom, and it was God's way of protecting his people against unnecessary wants. It's a beautiful thing. So why am I telling you about year of Jubilee? Well, do you realize this month marks the beginning of our 50th year as a congregation? That the, the, the congregation that started back in December of 1962 that is who we have become over these years, you know, a year from now we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary. But this is our 50th year. Now I'm not going to blow a ram's horn to start it off, but you just know that all of 2012 will be our year of Jubilee. And I want it to be a year of freedom. Can, can I share my dreams with you? Uh, I've, I've shared a couple of these in the past. I, I want to share them again, because I'm really excited. This to me is an opportunity not to be missed. This is a one golden opportunity, if you please, this year of Jubilee for us to make a difference, to make an impact, to change the course of this congregation for generations to come.
Now, we have more than 3,000 people here. We, you know, our attendance fluctuates between 2,600 and 3,000. And we, we have a lot more people that actually call this home because nobody is always here at the same Sunday. But let's just use 3,000 as a round figure that call this place home just for division purposes. Here are some of my dreams. In 2012, this year of Jubilee, that we will devote 50,000 hours of prayer to God's guidance for this congregation. You think, 50,000? How can we do 50,000 hours of prayer? Hang on to your hats, all right? Grab the pew in front of you. That is 17 hours of prayer per person for the year or three minutes a day. See, when you break it down, all of a sudden you think, oh, that's manageable. I can do that. I can do more than that. Good, do more than that. What I'm saying is, what if this congregation became one at doing 50,000 hours of prayer to make a difference that God would guide and direct us into the future? Here's another part of my dream. 50,000 hours of volunteer service devoted here and 50,000 hours of volunteer service devoted in the community based on who we are as a congregation. That's 34 hours of service both here and both out in the community. 34, that's less than one hour a week. That, that, that's pretty easy. Now, stop thinking about it. If you're already involved here as a volunteer, let's say you're, uh, let's say you're teaching a, a, a class, or you're working in the nursery, or you, or you work in the kitchen on Wednesday night, or you clean up uh, after different things, or you're part of the program tonight, or you work out in the parking lot, and, and that's worth double time. Okay? You're already halfway there. In a matter of 17 weeks, you're done. You've already made... Just think, though, if we concentrate and do that, we could blow the lid off of this. But I'm asking for 50,000 hours. And we're working on a way where you can log into our website and actually log your time in so that we'll know how much is being volunteered. I think you'll be excited to know what this congregation has been doing. I dream of a church that could pay for dozens of wells to be drilled at faraway places to provide clean water. I dream of a church where hundreds of children will have cleft palate surgeries and be given a new lease on life. I dream of a church where hundreds of solar-powered recorders could be given out in Ghana, Africa, where Terry and Amy Ruff are ministering. And they, you know, the, the people can't read, but if they had these solar-powered recorders, they could hear the Bible being read, and they could have commentaries on there to explain the Bible. I, I, I dream of a church where thousands of Bibles could be given to people in their native language who don't have one. That, you know, that next year we could give Abraham Tang enough Bibles in the Burmese language that every refugee in in Fort Wayne could have one. Wouldn't that be exciting? And we could do that every year if we didn't have a mortgage. Okay, now grab the pew in front of you, all right? Just, here's my big dream. What if we raised $5 million in 2012 above our regular giving and paid off the mortgage and had enough money left over to do all the things I just mentioned. I, I, I know that's a big dream, but oh, wow. Isn't a big dream worth getting behind? You say, well, 
How much are we in debt? Well, most of you know, I've, we've mentioned this too, that we're about $4 million in debt. And I've had people say, how in the world could that have happened? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. It was a step of faith. This congregation a few years ago said, we need to keep reaching out. We need the ministry tool to be able to do that. And a good portion of you, maybe as much as half of you, wouldn't even be here today if we hadn't stepped out and done that. And I frankly cannot imagine this congregation, this family, without all of you in it. If I had to stand here today and pick out half of you and say, y'all go. I couldn't do it because you're all family. You're all important. You all matter incredibly. So I'm glad this congregation stepped out in faith and we did it. Yeah, but four million, well, okay, well, let me put it into perspective. Four million to 3,000 people would be the same ratio as a congregation of 300 with a mortgage of 400,000. How, how, how big of a church building, how much of a church building can you build for 400,000? <laughs> Not much. It's the same ratio as a family of four having a mortgage for 6,000. Any, any of you have a home worth 6,000 6, here this morning? See, so you put it in that perspective and all of a sudden it's, a, okay, all right, I understand. That, that's not nearly as daunting as I first thought. But five million, unrealistic you say? Not at all. Hear me out. Here's just one way to look at it. There's going to be a lot of ways that we go, but here's one way we could look at it. What if we had a thousand units that gave five thousand apiece? A thousand units, five thousand dollars. We've got it paid. That's five million right there. Now there are some in this congregation that could probably do ten or fifteen units all by themselves. But there's a lot of you saying, I couldn't come up with five thousand dollars. Okay, I understand that. But what if your small group did? Or what if you got together with family and friends and say, hey, let's, let's find a way to do this. People, we had four teenagers in this congregation come up with $10,000 to build a well across the ocean for a, for a community that needed clean water. If our kids can do that, can't we step up in a year's time and do something grand and glorious and exciting? And here's the incredible good news about that. It, and that is that once it's paid, we have all that extra money that we pay in mortgage to use year after year after year to make a difference here and in this community and around the world. And I got a whole dream of lists for the kingdom of God that we can accomplish. You know, and, and here's the sad part about it. If all of us just followed the biblical pattern of giving, if all of us followed the command to tithe, which is 10% of our income, if we all did that, this wouldn't even be a dream. It would already be reality. So I'm not asking for something that isn't biblical already. That's asking an awful lot. Yeah, I know it is, but I think God's kingdom is worth it. You know what I think? This is just my opinion, but I think the church of the 20th century and the 21st century in America has often erred in making it too easy to be a Christian, just too easy to do church. Do you know what kind of commitment it takes to play basketball for IU? You talk to the guys who play on the team, how much blood, sweat, and tears, and practices, and everything else that they, they have to go through, and the pains, and the aches, and the you know, impact it has on their bodies, and then ask them if it's worth it. And I'll tell you, every one of them will say, yeah, it's worth it. Do you know what the military requires of men and women who serve? And yet I seldom hear a soldier say, eh, it's not worth it. What kind of sacrifices of time and money did you make to be a parent? Do you know what it costs now? It costs roughly $120,000 from the time they're born to the time they're 18. $120,000 to raise those kids. How many of you would like to send a couple back? 
I never talk to a parent, even with the heartbreaks that parenthood brings, never talk to a parent who says, I can't imagine, but what they say, I can't imagine life without my kids. You see, none of us as parents would want to undo that because, you know, if it costs, it counts. Some things are worth the price. Do you think if God had it to do all over again, he would sacrifice the life of his son so you could have eternal life? Without a doubt, God would tell you, you have been worth it. So would you pray for this next year, this year of our jubilee? Because I, can believe, I believe this can be the greatest year in the life of the church. I believe we can make the greatest impact. I think we can set the stage for a new tomorrow if we'll just step up like we've never stepped up before. Let me wind up with this. I guess you've discovered by this time we've been taken in, haven't you? We've been duped. That drum-beating pink bunny has lied to us all. I had to replace some of those batteries this week. I thought they were supposed to keep going and going and going and going, but they don't. They eventually, they eventually stop. And there's another battery company called EverReady. You'd think such batteries would never need to be replaced, but those do as well. The Eversharps that I have always run out of lead. I had to cut down a pine tree this year that's an evergreen, but it wasn't evergreen. <laughs> and I suspect if time goes long enough, the Everglades will dry up. You see, nothing in this world lasts forever. There is no such thing as ever green, ever ready, ever sharp in this world. Only one thing lasts eternally. God's kingdom. The kingdom of Christ. Shouldn't our best efforts be devoted there? It's the only thing that lasts. Shouldn't our prayer be, God help me to be who you want me to be? God, help me to want what you want. God, help me above all else to guard my heart. Isn't that what will make this season the best Christmas ever? If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, I can't imagine how this season means anything to you. But you can change all that right now by making him Number one.